Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. And it brings me with great pleasure to be able to introduce really a, a remarkable um, physician scholar, Dr. Ajit Vaki, who'll be telling us tonight about the genetics of hominid evolution. Dr. Vaki is currently co-director of a newly established UCSD Salk Center called the Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny, and we'll be hearing more about what that word means in Dr. Vaki's talk. This center known as Carter is bringing together scientists from very diverse fields who are interested in, in human origins. He is a distinguished professor in the departments of medicine and cellular molecular medicine in the UCSD Medical School, and he co-directs a glycobiology research training center and also helps run our physician scientist training center in the medical school at uh, UCSD. He's received basic training in physiology, cell biology, medicine, biochemistry at the Christian Medical College in Vellore of India, the University of Nebraska, and at WashU in St. Louis. He's uh, board certified in internal medicine, hematology, and oncology, and is clearly not a gentleman who uh, lends himself to a lot of sleep. I always like to mention the fact that you shouldn't just take my word for how wonderful these speakers are, that scientists and, and physicians always look to external validation for the quality of a speaker. And Dr. Varkey has that in that he's an elected member of the Institution of Medicine, American Academy of Arts and Sciences, American Society for Clinical Investigation, and the Association of American Physicians. He's received numerous awards, including a Merit Award from the National Institute of Health and an American Cancer Society Faculty Research Award. Ladies and gentlemen, this truly is a remarkable individual, and it's my pleasure to introduce you tonight, Dr. Ajit Vaki, who will be really telling us about why evolution matters when we think about human origins and medicine. Thank you, Steve, for that uh, very kind and uh, flattering introduction. I hope I can live up to it. So, as you can see, my talk will be in two parts. First, I'm going to talk about human evolution, the genetics of human evolution, and then about how this might impact on our understanding of human disease. So, some of the oldest questions of humans, most of us really, is who are we? What are we doing here? Where did we come from? How did we get here? And where are we going? The focus today is on these two questions. Where did we come from and how did we get here? Um, answering these two questions really falls in a field which is called anthropogeny or explaining the origin of humans. This is actually a very old term that I dug out from times past. It was first used in 1839, but it basically means the study of the origin of humans. So let's look at uh, humans from our perspective uh, in the universe. So about 13 or 14 billion years ago, the universe began. Life on Earth began about uh, 3 to 4 billion years ago. Then we had the great Cambrian expansion where most of the animal body forms appeared. And uh, about uh, 
50 million years or so ago, we had the origin of primates. And maybe about 15 or 20 million years, the origin of the so-called higher primates that uh, we belong to. And then about 100,000 years ago, the origin of all of us in this room. Now, this is an anthropocentric view of the universe. And as you can see, I've played a little trick here. I've used a logarithmic scale, making us look very prominent. <laughs> now, now let's look at life forms on Earth in a more proper perspective. Here are the three great branches of life, archaea, bacteria, and eukarya. And we belong to a small little subgroup called the metazoans, which includes us. So now let's zoom in on this region here. And we shared a common ancestor with mice and rats, probably about the time the dinosaurs disappeared, about 65 million years ago. And then with prosimians, new world monkeys, old world monkeys, lesser apes, and then the so-called greater apes. Now let's zoom in on this portion of the tree. And we shared a common ancestor with the orangutan about 13 million years ago, with the gorilla about 8 million years ago, and with the chimpanzee and the bonobo, so-called pygmy chimpanzee, about 5 to 6 million years ago. Now, based on morphology and other features, we classified all these species as great apes. But you simply have to look at this figure to realize there's something wrong here. We are closer to chimpanzees than they are to gorillas. In fact, we are closer to chimpanzees genetically than mice and rats are to each other. And so the classification now has been changed. We are all hominids. So, but I'll continue to use the term great apes off and on because I think there's an interesting question here. What is so unusual and different about this hominid compared with these hominids? And that really, you can argue, is a human question, but it is a question of interest to all humans. So, um, from the biological perspective, um, nobody would argue that DNA is uh, the code of life. But there tends to be this DNA-centric view of life that I'd like to suggest is, not, is incomplete. So, of course, DNA makes RNA, makes protein. But then there's a tendency to extend that to say, and then you get a cell, and then you get an organism. In other words, DNA makes the organism. So I'd like to suggest uh, two reasons why this is an incomplete view of life. The first is that DNA is just a recipe book. And you need the recipe book, but it's just a recipe book. It needs to be used or expressed. And of course, all of our DNA is in the midst of all life forms, is in the midst of a physical environment that has an enormous impact on how the DNA really is expressed. And all life forms live in a very complex biological environment, which also influences how the DNA is expressed. And of course, there are life forms like microbes that uh, are in undergoing an ongoing either symbiotic or pathogenic relationship with the larger organisms. The situation gets complicated when you look at large-brained social animals because you begin to see things that some would call culture or behavior where, in fact, uh, the behavior of one individual can affect the, the outcome of the DNA of the other individual. And, of course, humans, I think, are a special case. We've expanded our cultural environment to the point that we are controlling all of these environments and even beginning to control our genetic environment. 
So a more complete view of biology would be something like this. DNA, RNA, proteins, lipids or, or uh, fats that make up the membrane bilayers, glycans or sugars, enzymes, glycolipids, glycoproteins, proteoglycans giving cells, tissues, organisms. And of course, everything feeds back to DNA. And of course, don't forget, there's enormous influence of diet, microbes and parasites, physical environment, of course, and in our case, cultural environment. So what I want to focus on uh, in the rest of my introduction is this major class of molecules that is not talked about as much called glycans, which as you can have shown here covering cell surfaces. So if I were to prick your finger and make a blood smear and look at it, I would see something like this, where there'd be different types of cells, red cells, white cells, and so on. And uh, let's take a look at the cell called a lymphocyte. Looks a pretty smooth surface here. But if I were to zoom in on this and make an electron micrograph and decorate the surface, here's the nucleus, here's the cytoplasm, and all of this stuff up here is mostly the sugars, sugar chains. So in other words, the surface of cells in our bodies are not like the planet Mars or the moon with limited number of features. It's like the planet Earth. And everything that was green or colored would be sugars. So every cell in our body is covered with this dense coating of sugars, a very complex forests of sugars, which essentially didn't get studied initially because they were too hard to study. And this is the field that I work in, which is sometimes called glycobiology. Sometimes we call that the glycocalyx, this thick coating that's on the surface of every cell. So uh, here's a further zoom in on that, a cartoon now, of uh, different types of sugar chains, not all the ones you find on the cell surface. We now know a lot about these. There are glycolipids, there are glycoproteins, they can be secreted, they can be sometimes free sugar chains, and so on. And all of the work in my lab has been on this one class of sugars called sialic acids. As you can see, these little red diamonds, they're the tip of each of these uh, sugar chains, out, the outermost end. So what do sialic acids do? They've been around uh, for a long time, at least 500 million years since the Cambrian expansion. And so by virtue of their structure and charge and so on, they have many physical and structural roles affecting brain plasticity, affecting kidney filtration, and so on, and so on, and so on. Another major feature of of uh, sialic acids is that they are the ligands for extrinsic receptors. So if you were a pathogen approaching a human cell, the first thing you're going to see is sialic acid. So naturally learn how to bind to that. And its influence of malaria, cholera, etc., etc., running down it, run off the screen if I were to make this list. So if this was the sole purpose of sialic acids, they wouldn't have persisted for 500 million years. So in fact, we and others have found that within our own systems, there are receptors for sialic acids, and here are some of them here. In fact, if you eliminate sialic acids from a mouse during its development, it's an embryonic lethal. Very early on, you lose, you never get a mouse. So that's, that can explain why sialic acids persist. But the situation is further complicated by the fact that many successful human pathogens mimic our sialic acids. They decorate themselves looking exactly like us, coming in and fooling our immune systems, particularly with sialic acid. And this is called molecular mimicry. 
So if you look across the bottom of the screen, you can imagine 500 million years of an evolutionary arms race. If you have sialic acids, you're dead. If you don't have sialic acids, you're dead. So this is an ongoing, ongoing tussle uh, between uh, complex organisms and microbes. So my story here really starts a couple of years after I joined the faculty at UCSD when I used to be clinically active at the UCSD Medical Center. Two things happened in 1984 that really changed uh, the course of my life. The first was the birth of my daughter. So uh, no amount of training in science or medicine prepared me for this phenomenon of watching uh, essentially a little blob of nothing become a person. So that really fascinated me. The second thing that happened was that I saw a case of what is called a serum sickness reaction. So this is a, uh, was a young woman, unfortunate woman, with aplastic anemia, which is called bone marrow failure. And we had to give her uh, a kind of a horse serum uh, to treat this. And sure enough, after a certain amount of time, she developed a reaction against the Haas serum. So instead of just going to the textbooks, what academic physicians do is go to the literature and say, okay, what's the latest on this? And to my great surprise, I found the literature search that said that the immune reaction was partly against the sialic acids in Haas serum. So I said, how can that be? Uh, sialic acids are everywhere. They're throughout our bodies. How can you have an immune response against something that's on every cell in your body? And of course, the situation, as you dig into it deeper, is more complicated. So you look back over the past literature, and I realized that there was something different about the sialic acids of humans. So this is the only chemistry slide I'm going to show you. There are two major kinds of sialic acids found in mammals. So this would be that red diamond that I showed you earlier, attached here to the underlying sugar chain. This one is called Nu5AC, and this one is called Nu5GC, and they differ by one oxygen atom. So all you have to remember is AC and GC, and they differ by one oxygen atom. So looking at the literature further, I found that, in fact, GC had been reported to be missing in humans, and that, uh, but was present in tumors and fetuses. And so this is what the immune response was, because the Haas serum had this additional oxygen atom. So I decided to look into this further, and uh, with Elaine Muchmore and Sandra Diaz, uh, we and others across the world, actually others did this too, figured out the mechanism of conversion of AC to GC. So AC is the precursor to GC. So a core principle of biology is that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And so I decided to look at this from the evolutionary perspective. And so we looked at a variety of different species that shared a common ancestor about the time the dinosaurs disappeared. And what we found is that while we could find AC in all these species, we found GC in all these species but not in humans. So we went further and got samples of our closest evolutionary cousins. And we did that, looking at sialic acids from blood samples. We all had AC but we were missing GC. So in other words, we were sort of mutant of a kind. So we had to figure out what this mutation was. And further work uh, showed that this, there was a gene, the gene that we had studied, that is responsible for making GC from AC had been mutated during human evolution. 
So all of us in this room are missing this gene. So we are sort of like a knockout mouse where one gene has been taken out and all a metabolic disease where we're accumulating the precursor. So we have the same amount of sialic acid, but we have AC, too much AC and no GC. So really this is a major difference in cell surfaces. So if you look at humans, these red spots here would all be AC. But if you look at apes, uh, other hominids, about half the sialic acid is AC, the other half would be GC. So this is a big difference on every, most cells in the body. So of course, various questions came up to me. When did it happen? What are the consequences of human evolution? What are the consequences of human disease? And so on. And uh, this is a subject I realize is widely discussed in the popular literature. I mean, it, hardly a week goes by when you don't see a magazine cover or something devoted to who are we, how did we get here, what are we, and so on. Here are some recent examples. So some of our work actually got featured in this uh, issue here. It's even made it into the very popular literature. The most recent Michael Crichton book uh, talks a lot about human-chimp sialic acid differences. Sialic acid is a mark of a chimp blood. We should send it to San Diego. And he came up negative in a sialic acid test. This is some bizarre story about a chimpanzee Z or something like that. And uh, absence of enzyme is a human trait, etc., etc. So uh, the problem, though, is that they don't teach evolution in medical schools. And this is really just a historical artifact that the science came into medicine in the 1920s before the great evolutionary synthesis of the 1940s and 50s. So really, my education, evolution, was no better than any of you. I'd read all the articles in National Geographic and Discover and so on, and a little bit, of course, in early days in college. So I realized I had to educate myself. So the first thing I did was I went to the Yerkes Primate Center in Atlanta. One of the wonderful things about being a UCSD faculty member is you get to take sabbaticals where they let you off your teaching for a while where you can go and learn something new. So I went uh, to the Yerkes Primate Center and spent a couple of months there uh, picking everybody's brain about chimpanzees. And um, one of the amazing things I found was that they were using Harrison's textbook of internal medicine, the same textbook I use to take care of humans, because they said chimps are just like humans. After a while, I got suspicious, and I went through chapter by chapter, and I would ask the veterinarian who had been there for 30 years, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And it turned out that there are many apparent differences between humans and great apes and the incidence and severity of medical conditions. And I'm not just talking about things that occur to us because we stand up straight, like hernias or back problems and things like that. I'm not going to go through this list uh, completely, but just for example, we now know that we actually got HIV from chimpanzees. But before we knew that, in the days when this was permissible, uh, we put HIV back in chimpanzees and only one of them ever got AIDS. Uh, they don't get sick with the common malaria. Uh, they don't get uh, late complications of hepatitis. There's, I've found only one report of a chimpanzee who had a heart attack of the kind that humans get. They get a completely different kind of heart attack, and so on. There's never been any of the major cancers of humans reported in any chimpanzees or any great apes. And then going through the textbook, notice here I'm saying possible, because this is totally anecdotal. Not a single case of rheumatoid arthritis, bronchial asthma, toxemia, pregnancy, endometriosis occurs, but it's rare, and so on. So anyway, I thought this was pretty interesting, and so it is not just a question, a philosophical question of who are we and how did we get here. It's a, also a biomedical question. So why study diseases of other hominids? 
you think about it, major diseases of a given species are likely to be related to maladaptations during the recent evolutionary past to that species. If something has been working well for 100 million years, absent a new toxin or a pathogen, it should keep working well. But if something was recently evolved, it's more likely to go wrong. So the corollary is that comparison of disease incidence is susceptible between humans and our closest evolutionary relatives should be useful. So the second thing I did to educate myself was to go around La Jolla bugging everybody who knew anything about uh, anything related to this, ranging from linguists to neuroscientists to anthropologists and so on. And one thing led to another, and uh, we formed a group called the Project for Explaining the Origin of Humans. And using email, we were able to communicate with people from all over the world. And so this was a broad-based, multidisciplinary coalition of individuals interested in defining and explaining the evolutionary origin of humans and in generating testable hypotheses and new agendas for research regarding this matter. So this is really something we've been doing for 10 years, but just very quietly, just as a purely intellectual exercise. And it's been truly exciting. And so I've had attended more than uh, 30 conferences and listened to more than 300 talks about human origins. So I've given myself a bachelor's degree in anthropogeny now. <clears throat> so one of the outcomes of this kind of interdisciplinary, or actually I call it transdisciplinary interaction, is that you get to do research that you would never be able to do otherwise. So here's the question. When did we lose GC during human evolution? Here's our common ancestor with the bonobo and the chimpanzee. We know there were other species like Paranthropus, Australopithecus like Lucy. We had uh, the Homo emerge here and then other species, eventually Neanderthals, and then us. So the question is, when did the GC mutation occur? When did we lose the ability to make GC? And working with Mee Vleke in Africa, Swante Pabo and with his Neanderthal samples in Europe, and Yuki Takahata with his genetics and population genetics expertise in uh, Japan, we were able to figure out that this mutation occurred about two, two, two to three million years ago. So it had nothing to do with us standing up straight, which is way back here. But it could have had something to do with things that happened after this. It's an interesting period in human evolution because that's when brain size increased, stone tools uh, appeared, uh, hunting and meat-eating began. So going back to this framework of biological roles of sialic acids, we could ask, well, okay, so what? If we lost GC and have too much AC, what happens? So let's look at ligands for extrinsic receptors. And it turns out that we've already found that we can explain why humans don't get the chimpanzee malaria and chimpanzees don't get the human malaria because of AC and GC. We found effects on SV40 virus. Uh, others have found coronavirus and so on. So clearly this makes a difference to what kind of infectious diseases we can get. There are diseases of cattle that, and pigs that we, that we can't get because those pathogens bind to GC. At the level of molecular mimicry, uh, it turns out that all these pathogens are expressing AC. No pathogen knows how to make GC. And we have evidence uh, that this is taking advantage of our immune systems. What about our own intrinsic receptors? The ligands for intrinsic receptors. <coughs> the biggest family of these receptors are called Siglex. And this happens to be a family that we co-discovered and named in the mid-90s, about the time we were making these discoveries. Uh, these, don't worry about the details, these are proteins that have the sialic acid binding motif in the outermost end. So they can grab sialic acids and send signals of various kinds. But we knew there was a lot more going on than here. And we had the human genome, 
but we really wanted to see the chimpanzee genome. So in one of the few scientific lobbying expert, uh, uh, attempts that I've made, I participated in writing the white papers that resulted in the sequencing of the chimpanzee genome. The reasons we gave were, of course, explaining humans, explaining biomedical differences, which got the NIH interested, improving our understanding of the human genome, and improving the care and conservation of chimpanzees. They shouldn't be taken care of using Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. They, they seem to be somewhat different. So actually, uh, one of the few public symposia the project did was when the genome was almost completed, when we had this uh, symposium in La Jolla in 2004 uh, on sequencing the chimpanzee genome, what have we learned? This is a Photoshop image, by the way. <laughs> So um, this resulted in 2005 in the sequence of the chimpanzee genome and comparison of the human genome. And we are really minor players in this. Uh, there's the, the people in blue there are people from my group. It takes a very large group to do this kind of genome sequencing. And we learned quite a lot. But the mo most important thing we learned, unfortunately, was the situation was extremely complicated. Our genes were not the only ones that had changed. Many other genes are different. So it's a very complicated story. But... With that, we were able to compare the SIGLEX between humans and other apes, and we were able to fill them out and essentially get all of the SIGLEX between humans and apes. And what we found was human-specific changes. Everywhere where I have a lightning bolt, we found a human-specific change, something that happened on the lineage leading to humans and not on the other lineages. So we thought this is interesting. It's one thing to find one genetic mutation and might have happened by chance during evolutionary history, but lightning doesn't strike so many times in the same place, and there are less than 60 genes involved in sialic acid biology. So uh, as with all evolutionary processes, you, can, you weren't there at the time it happened, so you can only come up with a scenario. And in this recently published review, I'm not going to go into the details, basically we've come up with a scenario for how uh, these events occurred, and all the different genes and how they might have been affected during this process. And again, I won't go through the details, but essentially when GC was lost, a lot of our SIGLEX uh, ran out of things to do because the ancient SIGLEX bound GC, and then a lot of selection had to occur here. So this also changed the kind of pathogens that we get but we've also found strange differences. Uh, one SIGLEC has popped up in the human brain. It's not in the chimpanzee brain. One another one has popped up in the human placenta. It's not in the, human, in the chimpanzee placenta, and so on. So we think that these events have something to do with human evolution. But my own preference is not to speculate too much. People tend, this is a field where people like to speculate. I'd rather wait for the data. All I can say is that for lack of a better word, I think we have a silo quick in human evolution. And we're still settling down from that. And exactly what this means for us remains to be seen. Now, there was one other big surprise, which was that a non-genetic consequence, which is that dietary ingestion of GC with antibodies against GC resulting in diseases associated with chronic inflammation. This is ongoing work we have right now. But it goes something like this. So... We lost GC sometime during our evolution. And so the human body should have no intrinsic GC. But my spouse and collaborator, Nisi Barki, who's sitting in the audience, found that, in fact, normal humans had GC, not just in cancers, but even in our normal tissues. 
So to address this issue, uh, I decided to do an experiment on myself. I got permission and I drank uh, the ape sialic acid. It showed up in my urine, my facial hair, and so on. And it turned out that you were probably wondering how I got permission to do this. The reason is that this is in our food. And so it's really mostly found in livestock, milk, uh, lamb, pork, and beef. And so all I told the uh, Institution Review Board was I was going to do what people in the Midwest did on July 4th. So, uh, <clears throat> and, and yeah, it turns out that uh, the average American consumes between 25 to 150 milligrams of GC a day. And it turns out that it's accumulating in our tissues, particularly in our blood vessels and in our epithelia. And meanwhile, we all have antibodies. In fact, some of us, it turns out, have very high levels of antibodies against this foreign sugar. And so we think this combination, and this is really work that's in progress, of having GC and antibodies to GC result in chronic inflammation. Uh, you know, it's funny, chronic inflammation, I was trying to explain our work to somebody at a cocktail party, a non-scientist, and I finally said the word chronic inflammation. He said, ah, that's what you mean, chronic inflammation. Well, that's the word these days. And it turns out that chronic inflammation, that is an immune response that is inadequate or inappropriate, can result in disease. And cancer, heart attacks, etc., are facilitated by, by chronic inflammation. But there's something else going on. Meanwhile, in modern times, we have used animal products of all kinds, animal cells, so on, and incorporated them into a lot of our biotherapeutic products. It ranges from tiny amounts to quite substantial amounts, and we're now injecting it into our cells. And so we are a little concerned that perhaps this might be leading to some drug reactions and interactions and so on, and this is something we're investigating. So this slide, along with the previous slide I showed you, is sort of a roadmap for what we're doing in our lab right now. And uh, it's interesting, though, that if we go back to my slide about differences between humans and apes and diseases, we can come up with potential roles of sialic acid and siglec changes in explaining some of the apparent differences between humans and great apes in the incidence and severity of medical conditions. So if I take that same list I showed you before and say loss of GC excess AC, siglec changes, and GC and GC antibodies, I can come up with hypotheses, testable hypotheses, about how some of these disease differences might be related to these, uh, these phenomena. So far, we've only uh, nailed one or two of them, and we're continuing to work on these issues because this may relate uh, in, in some way to some of our diseases, and uh, this is something we're currently investigating. So uh, that's where I'm going to end talking about my own work. I'm going to go back to some general issues now. About 1998, the project group coined the term phenome, suggesting that it's all very well to get the genome, but we need the phenome, not just of humans, but of also the great apes and other primates and so on. And of course, the genome is very important, but the genome through the lens of the environment gives you the phenome. That is the total phenotypic output of, uh, of, of any species. The problem is we know a huge amount of the human phenome and very, very little about remarkably little about, except for observational studies, we know very little about uh, chimpanzees and other great apes. And this is not an easy problem to address because there are serious ethical considerations in compar comparing humans and great apes. So Pascal Gagnon and Jim Moore and myself wrote an article in the same issue where uh, the chimp genome was published. And this is, this is no, not an easy problem. But we concluded that we should conduct research on great apes following principles similar to those used in human research. 
What's happening now is people have gone to the other extreme and say we should not do any research on great apes. So in fact, since I wrote this article, I get contacted by uh, uh, people who really care about chimpanzees, and I actually do, and I donate to some of their causes, who say, please sign this to ban all future research on chimpanzees. And I respond saying, I would no more think of doing that than to ban all future research on humans. That would be a very bad idea. If you don't do research on a species, you don't know anything about the species. But unfortunately, uh, there's a time window where we may not be able to do a lot of research on these wonderful animals who are also disappearing in the wild. But regardless, there's a lot that we can learn by using techniques no different from what we do with humans, drawing blood samples, doing routine checks, getting autopsy samples like we do in humans, and so on. And that's the way we approach uh, the research on great apes. And of course, there's some very interesting work going on in cognitive studies and so on uh, in the live animals. So um, if we want to explain human origins, I'd like to suggest that we need a broad agenda for anthropogeny. So this is from an article that uh, uh, I co-wrote with David Nelson in the Annual Review of Anthropology. This is when I finally knew that I had graduated because I was asked to write a review in the Annual Review of Anthropology. So here are chimpanzees and here are humans, and we need to do comparisons, we need to study interactions, phylogeny, that is the evolutionary origins, and, and, and the uh, ontogeny, which is the development, which are the major themes of uh, this series. So obviously we need to compare chimps and humans, we need to study the, from the last common ancestor, look at fossils and archaeological data. There's only one fossil to date of chimpanzees, uh, they're very hard to find but many fossils, of course, of human ancestors. And we need to work on this. We need to work, uh, study how the environment, physical, biological, cultural, affects both species. We need to compare it with other primates and, of course, other species. We need to compare the interactions of males and females. The other big area of evolution that I believe doesn't get as much attention as it should is the, the war of the sexes, if you will. That's the sexual selection is also a major feature of, uh, of evolution. And of course, in the case of complex animals like chimpanzees and humans, there are issues about interaction of adults with infants and infants with females and males and so on. So this is sort of an agenda for anthropogeny, if you will. So pursuing anthropogeny involves most academic disciplines. If I were to place anthropogeny in the midst of all this, it would be something like this. We need the input of all of these people to be able to even begin to approach this problem. And so this is why the center that uh, was just mentioned was started. Uh, as I said, we already had this project going for 10 years, but decided to make it a little more formal and public, uh, mainly because we wanted to involve students more in, in education and so on. And this center is co-directed by myself, along with Rusty Gage of the Salk Institute, and Margaret Schoeninger, who's past chair of the Department of Anthropology. So it involves the medical school, the campus, and the Salk Institute, and actually has a wide network of, uh, we have about 150 members across the world, from uh, many of them household names in, in this field, that, that communicate with us and come here for meetings. Pascal Gagneau is the associate director, and Linda Carlson is the uh, uh, main administrator. So the center is just taking off right now, and it's got a long ways to go, but the Mathers Foundation has supported us, and these are subject areas of interest, primate genetics and evolution, paleontology and hominid origins, mammalian and primate neurosciences, primate biology and medicine, language and cognition, 
human and primate society and culture, comparative primate reproductive biology, geographic and climatic factors. So we even have people from SIO who work with us in this, in this effort in hominid evolution. And of course, all the general theories for explaining human origins, but any of these theories, of which there are many, need to take into account all the data from here. So, uh, obviously we want to compare humans and apes, and over the years I've accumulated a big list of differences between humans and apes, and this is a short version of that list that was published recently. But let's look at some simple ones, some features that seem to differentiate us from chimpanzees who seem to be like gorillas and orangutans and bonobos in these respects. Obviously, there's language and the complexity of our culture and a large brain size relative to the body. We seem to have a longer maximum lifespan. We have a fully opposable thumb. Uh, we have a descended larynx that adapts us for speech. We have difficult childbirth. Chimpanzees give birth at night in half an hour without too much trouble. We have prolonged helplessness of the young. Our young seem to need... This is partly true of chimpanzees, but much so in humans. We have female menopause, and we have grandmothers. Uh, very few other species have grandmothers. In fact, the only other ones, I think, are known are some pilot whales, actually. Uh, loss of body hair, of course. Poor wound healing. Decreased skeletal muscle strength. It takes uh, three strong men to hold down one young chimpanzee. Risk of a third molar wisdom tooth impaction because our jaws are much smaller. One less chromosome. They all have a uh, bone in their penis and we don't. Uh, our breasts are developed in a virgin adult female and we have a chin and they don't. And we have earlobes and so on. This is just a sampling of the differences. So the idea is that if you could take all these differences, put them into one database and then find out more about each one of them, and then find out when the changes occurred, the story will almost tell itself. So to that end, with the cooperation of San Diego Supercomputer Center and Cal IT Squared, we're working on something called the Museum of Comparative Anthropogeny, which will be a web-based comparison of humans and great apes, where we'll go all the way from ecology, the full circle of life, back to culture. And in each of these, there will be items about the differences between humans and great apes, and of course, uh, some information about it. Eventually, these things will be published formally, but at least initially, hopefully in less than a year, we should have this website out with the help of uh, the computer specialists, make it really accessible and useful to everyone. So, finally then, I'd like to suggest a, a modification of uh, Dobzhansky's famous dictum that nothing in the biological aspects of medicine, medicine is a very complex thing, it's just not just involved biology, makes sense, except in the light of evolution. And I think that uh, this is one of the things, I recently started teaching evolution in the, in the UCSD Medical School, and I got the best response that I've ever had to any lecture I've ever given. These, these kids were so hungry to learn about this. And it turns out a lot of our diseases, not just the ones I mentioned, are associated with our evolution and our mismatch with our evolution and our current status. So, I'd like to then close there with acknowledgments. Members of the lab, without them, none of this work would have been done. Many mentors and collaborators, the NIH and the Mathers Foundation for not only supporting the project and my work, but now Carter. Colleagues at UCSD School of Medicine, Burnham, Scripps, Salk, the Glycobiology Research Center, and the project for explaining the origin of humans.
Now, it's often said that uh, behind every successful man, there's a surprised woman. <laughs> and uh, in my case, there are actually four. There's my mother, who's a professor of English literature, still writing uh, letters to the editor in India in uh, major newspapers. Uh, my daughter, Sarah, who uh, fortunately turned out to be uh, the model child, allowing me to concentrate on anthropogeny. Sandra Diaz, who has uh, worked with me for 25 years since we started the lab, and we just had our 25th anniversary in the lab. And last but definitely not least, Nisi Varki, uh, who's actually my research collaborator, not just my spouse, and we are close to our 35th anniversary. And it so happens that today is Nisi's birthday. So I'd like, to, like you all to give her a hand. So I'd like to leave you with this slide that says that anthropogeny is actually an agenda for all of us, for humanity. We really need to know, with scientifically verifiable facts, where did we come from? How did we get here? Because if we cannot answer these questions, we really don't know where we're going. And so the answer to this would be a broad agenda for all of us to pursue uh, anthropogeny. And no matter what your background, you can contribute uh, something, I believe, to this issue. At the very least, think about it, talk about it, because I think this is a very important agenda for all of us. Thank you. So the question is, uh, how do you know all these different species and what they have? So in the case of Neanderthals, we did two things. We looked at a real fossil sampled from Europe and looked at the sialic acids and found that our sialic acids were like us, not like chimpanzees. But we also looked at what's called a molecular fossil, that is, the place where the gene got damaged, it left a mark, and then it became a sort of a timer. So by comparing the, our gene, which is no longer a gene, it's a dead gene, which is wandering, and the other genes, you can make a clock. And you do that clock, you get about two and a half million years. So Neanderthal is a common ancestor with us half million years. So one of our current projects is to fill that gap with more fossil studies. But this is not a trivial matter to do, but the only way we can even have access to such samples is to have this type of collaboration. So the question is about speculating about the importance of having GC in red meat and milk products um, and the relationship to cooking. The first thing to say is that we know that the human body is accumulating GC. We don't be studying this. We don't know at what rate and how, but we know it's probably coming from these food sources. So over a lifetime, it's accumulating. And so we are speculating that the combination of the fact that we also have antibodies, this is a Trojan horse. It's not just a toxin like mercury or something. It gets into you and becomes part of you. It's actually part of your cells. In fact, we can take a uh, human cell in culture and feed it GC and make it look like a chimpanzee cell. So we think this antigen-antibody reaction, depending on the individual, depending on the on so on, is causing problems. Now, there's a lot of diseases that are associated with eating excess amounts of red meat, and some are, some are diseases associated with excess amounts of milk. And it, they happen to fit a hypothesis. So we're interested in that. Now, cooking is an interesting thing. It's not known exactly when cooking started. Humans started controlling fire probably a few hundred thousand years ago. It's not entirely clear. By about 100,000 years ago, it's pretty clear that we were cooking. 
Whether or not cooking destroys GC or releases it and makes it more accessible is an issue. And we have some collaborators in Singapore, actually, who are look, looking at different foodstuffs and seeing what happens to GC during cooking. Now, to be careful, we have not proven any of this. We, we think this may relate to these diseases. But if we're right, eventually it'll turn out that uh, you'd have to know. It's, remember, just like when you eat different starches, you may or may not get sugar inside you. Maybe someday, like the glycemic index, we'd need a GCMIC index, but we don't know. So the question is about the ratio between omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids. And obviously, if you change your diet, you're not just going to... For what it's worth, I've been on a GC-free diet for three years. Not everybody in my lab is yet, though. <laughs> uh, so as you change whether or not you get GC, you're also going to change things like omega-3 and omega-6. So it's a very complex situation. So the idea is to manipulate, and we can do this now because we now have a mouse that has the exact mutation that humans have. So now we can begin to study these questions. Uh, what's, what happens to GC? Does it matter what else is in the diet? And we're actually modeling these things. And we've been able to show... Uh, in unpublished work that cancers grow faster if they have a little bit of GC inside them, inside this mouse. The question is about vegetarians. Uh, yes, definitely, if, uh, if you look at groups like Seventh-day Adventists, Indian Jains, uh, the, the truly vegan groups, they have much lower incidences of many of these cancers and heart attacks and so on. The problem with vegetarians is, like vegetarians from South India, for example, they consume huge amounts of milk to make up for for not eating. Now, milk has a very good image, uh, justifiably so. It saved a lot of lives, you know, in the last tens of ten thousand, five, five or six thousand years. But on the other hand, milk is beef. It's a, it's a, it's a cow tissue, and no other mammal steals the milk of another mammal after it's finished with mother's milk. So, milk has certainly a lot of positive features, but it also has GC and saturated fats and so on in it. The question is, when we lost GC, did we change our pathogen regimes? It turns out, in our preliminary evidence so far, the malaria that infects chimpanzees and gorillas binds GC. So when we lost GC, we probably escaped a bunch of pathogens. In fact, one of the questions people ask is, so why did we lose GC? One chromosome on one individual somewhere two and a half million years ago got this mutation, and that mutation is universal to all of us now. So probably there was some selection. It may have been an actual pathogen that was binding GC. So this has now left us, uh, you know, resistant to pathogens like uh, E. coli, K99, TG virus of, of cattle and so on. On the other hand, it leaves us very sensitive to pathogens that learn bind AC. And we have a theory which, for which there's support emerging that the big falciparin malaria that's killing all of us, it emerged out of the chimpanzee malaria later to take advantage of the fact that, you know, we're a great target for anything that can bind AC. The GC vary in animals depending on their feed. So most, the animals are making their own GC inside their bodies, right? But the, what's coming in from the outside is probably not a major factor because unlike humans, all these other animals are making GC. They have the gene, right? Uh, so we have not really pushed that. We are actually trying to see what happens to mice, for example, if, you know, if we feed, feed GC. Uh, but in humans, I don't want you to go with the impression that we're all, all those who eat red meat are like chimpanzees, that we're full of GC. It's a very small amount. It's only 1% to 2%. But as far as the immune system is concerned, that's a lot. So the other thing we're working on, hoping to do someday, is to have a way of eliminating GC from the bodies. If it turns out we're right, that this in fact has disease potential, I don't think we're going to convince everybody to stop eating uh, you know, their favorite holiday meals 
uh, we need a way to eliminate this molecule. So that's biochemistry. And we're working on the biochemistry of GC to see whether we can find a way to get rid of it. Yeah, so it turns out that birds, uh, we actually make antibodies, chickens make antibodies just like humans. Uh, And it turns out that uh, some birds we looked at don't have much GC. So if they lost GC, it was an independent event. And reptiles we haven't looked at very much. So most of the mammals we've looked at don't have plenty of GC. They have the gene. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if we find another, you know, clearly if you lose GC, it's still compatible with survival. So if it becomes a survival need, it may have happened in some other taxon somewhere. What we can say is old world monkeys, all the apes all have GC. And then in that lineage, we lost GC. So the consequence of losing GC in this lineage would be very different from, in fact, our knockout mouse. You, know, you might say, gee, so you know, what happened? Well, it's a mouse. It's not a primate. And it's showing certain unusual features that are maybe human-like, but uh, it's not going to be the same as what happened two million years ago to an ape-like ancestor who lost GC. So it turns out the tumors are specializing in taking up GC from food. Probably it helps them because they get this weak immune response and inflammation. The fetus is getting it from mom. What Nissi has found is that placenta, you know, the afterbirth, has GC in it. And so the fetus is able to accumulate it. So one of the interesting questions we answered is, does it matter whether what your mother ate in terms of how much GC you're born with? That maybe that'll even protect you. We don't know. And then, of course, the switch from mother's milk to cow's milk. Does that matter? So we're doing all those kind of studies right now. Well, I'd just like to remind you to uh, please fill in the questionnaires and hand them in. But most importantly, please join me in thanking Dr. Varki for an excellent seminar. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.